The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. Well, we are talking about uh, churches equipped to care. That's the theme. And I don't know of, of anything that is better to motivate us, to motivate our hearts to care than to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, as we look at Christ, we look at him as our Savior. We look at him as our model. And you have to get that order right. He has to be Savior before he can be model or example. We look to him as our Savior, our example, and our sanctifier. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to dig into a passage in the book of Hebrews that I believe can help us be better equipped to care for God's people because it does something for us, and that is it points us to the one who cared for us and cares for us beyond our comprehension. And so if you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 14, this is God's holy and inspired word, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you once again tonight and we thank you for your, for your holy and inspired word. Father, we thank you for the God-breathed scriptures which are profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. Father, we thank you that in the pages of Holy Scripture, your Holy Spirit delights to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray tonight for the help of the Holy Spirit. We know he delights to shine his floodlight on your son, and we pray that he would do that tonight through this wonderful text. Father, we pray that as we, as we dig into your word, that you would give us the ability to, to not only comprehend and understand, but Father, we pray that we would be transformed by your truth. Father, your son prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And we pray, Father, tonight that you would sanctify us through your holy word. And Father, we pray that as we, as we unfold this text, that your spirit would be pleased to draw our hearts out to the Lord Jesus Christ in wonder and love and in praise. For he truly is the worthy lamb who has been slain. And so we pray for your help tonight, for the glory of your Son, and for the equipping of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this wonderful and very rich text, we, um, we see starting in verses 14 and 15, it's, it's obviously picking up in the middle of an argument, but 14 and 15 is, is the best place for us to start. The, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that, that the Son of God actually enters into human history to partake, fully partake, of flesh and blood. 
the Lord Jesus Christ comes into this world in the incarnation and fully and completely shares in our humanity. And the writer to the Hebrews makes it very clear that the reason the Son of God, the eternal Son, the one who had always been with the Father and in all glory with the Father, the reason why he leaves his glory with the Father and enters into human history is so that he can enter fully into the human experience of suffering and ultimately death on our behalf. And so the writer tells us in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that he actually came to partake of flesh and blood, that is to become fully human, in order to do what? In order to destroy, to render inoperative, the one who holds the power of death, which is the devil. It's an amazing thought, really. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that the Son of God becomes a human being in order to die so that he can destroy the one who holds the power of death. In this short passage, we have two great historical theological themes. One, why God became man, and the other, the death of death in the death of Christ. And so it's through the incarnation and through his vicarious death that Jesus Christ actually comes to set us free from the fear of death. And so that's kind of the background. And then when we get to verse 16, we read these these words. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants or the seed of Abraham. So when we get to verse 16, we end up having a statement that the writer says makes, and that is, he partook of flesh and blood, and he did this. Certainly, he didn't come to literally lay hold of angels. Now, one thing is sure about this text, and that is what the writer's doing, is the writer's telling us that there's this inference, and that is, He became man and he came to die. And the point is, is that he came to do what he did, not for angels' sake, but for our sake. Now, there is a, uh, there's an exegetical difficulty in verse 16. Jim knows that I like to dig into the details, which is why I go so painfully slow uh, through um, the Bible. And I want to I want to like just, I look at preaching like, like squeezing a lemon. And once you squeeze it, you look at it and you go, you know what, if I just turn it a little bit, I can squeeze it a little bit more. And then you look at it and you go, I, I turn it a little bit, I can squeeze it a little bit more. And I'm just like committed, just like squeezing everything that I can out of it. And, uh, and so as we look at this, I'm not going to bore you tonight with all of the exegetical difficulties of verse 16, but let me just tell you what the two opinions are. The first is that the idea when it says, for certainly he does not take hold of angels, the old view of what that meant was that he did not come and take to himself the nature of angels, but rather he took to himself the nature of the seed of Abraham. And so in other words, that idea would be a reference to the incarnation. He did not come to take hold of the nature of angels. He came to take hold of the nature of the seed of Abraham. Now that was the prevailing opinion among the church fathers. Um, It was also the opinion of Calvin and John Owen. And for some of you, that's all you need. You go, well, that must be the right view. I want to suggest actually that there's another view that's better and more exegetically sound. And that is that the idea is not that he did, uh, did not come to take to himself the nature of angels, but rather he did not come to help to render aid, to have concern of angels, but the seed of Abraham. I'm convinced that that actually is the best rendering of the text. And I'm convinced of that because I think that the writer is appealing to an Old Testament text, 
Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. If you just keep your finger there. Just turn over to Isaiah real quickly. I don't, I don't want to do what my dear brother John Sale did and get through half a point and then ask what, how much time he had left and find out he had 60 seconds, all right? So I want to keep moving. But just look at this, Isaiah 41. And again, this passage is significant for many reasons that we won't dive into, but I want you to see this. God says in Isaiah 41 in verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, notice the language, descendant or seed of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken, there's our word, taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I've chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The word in an Old Testament background means to take hold of in order to deliver and to help and to care for. And this is the way that we see, I think, it being used in Hebrews chapter 2. And so the writer says that the Son of God did not partake of flesh and blood to come and to, to render that aid, that deliverance, that help for angels, but surely he did it for who? The seed of Abraham. Now, the question then becomes, who is the seed of Abraham? And the answer is, I'm looking at them, right? Paul says very clearly, Galatians 3, verse 16, that Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. And if you have the faith of Abraham, you are then Abraham's seed. So in other words, to be in union with Christ, who is the consummate seed of Abraham, then is to become the seed of Abraham. So in this passage, the seed of Abraham would be the sons who have been led to glory, chapter 2, verse 10. Those who are being sanctified, verse 11. The brothers, verse 12. The children whom God had given him, verse 13. And the children who partake of of flesh and blood, verse 14. So chapter 2, verse 16, makes an astonishing statement, and that is what the Son of God did in the Incarnation... He did not come to do for angels, rather, he came to do that for the seed of Abraham. That is, Jesus Christ himself is our strong hero, our mighty champion, the one whose strong hand actually has pulled us up out of danger. It's his hand that has reached in into our darkness and into our distress to deliver us. It is his hand that takes hold of ours and leads us through the wilderness and his hand strengthens us, reassures us, and guides us. He did not come to do that for angels. He came to do that for you. Then the writer says in verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So after the writer has told us that the Son of God partook of flesh and blood in order to render the one who held the power of death powerless and in order to be um, our rescuer, our deliverer, the one who takes hold of us, now the writer tells us that he had to be made like his brethren in every respect. Does that have anything to do with us caring for others? I would suggest to you that it has everything to do with us caring for others. When we stop and just think about the incarnation and what it meant for Jesus Christ to leave that heavenly glory from the side of the Father to enter into this world, the writer to the Hebrews focuses on that and says this is the defining event. This is the defining event where the Son of God actually came into this world to be made like his brethren, that is the seed of Abraham, in every respect. One of the things that we sometimes do as evangelicals is 
we are, we are very, very, very good at uh, articulating and defending the deity of Christ. And that's right and good. We should be able to do that. We should be able to look at the scriptures and defend and articulate the doctrine that Jesus Christ himself is very God of very God. But one of the things that we're not that good at, that is understanding, appreciating, marveling at the humanity of Jesus Christ. To me, it is is just as astounding that Jesus Christ is fully man, just as it is astounding that he's fully God. Very man of very man. Jesus Christ comes into this world and he becomes a full and complete human being. Think of that. The Son of God, the eternal Son, the one who always existed with the Father, the one who was with God and the one who is God in the fullness of time enters into human history and doesn't come riding down out of heaven on a white steed or a chariots of fire following him. He enters into human history into the womb of a virgin. What an astonishing thing that the Son of God would actually for that full gestation period inhabit a womb. And then he's born in the, in the same ordinary, messy, yucky, icky way that every other baby in the world comes in. Hey, I, I, I watched two. I watched two. And it's, if you're a man, it's frightening. <laughs> and on that first one, the nurse smiles and hands me scissors and asks me if I want to cut the cord. I'm like, why would I want to do that? (laughs) Here Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world and he doesn't come with the pomp and circumstance of royalty and majesty. He comes in the quietness of the virgin's womb, enters in, and he enters in not just as a human being, full and complete human being, but he enters into the full human experience. He comes in the weakness of human flesh. He comes in the weakness of human emotion. He comes in the weakness of human suffering. And he comes ultimately in the weakness of even human death. The Son of God took upon himself flesh and blood in order to die. A real human body, a real human soul, real human emotions, fully human in every way, just like we are, with one grand exception, without sin. Marvel at the incarnation. Marvel at the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk about something that motivates us to care for others. What could be more motivating than to think that the Son of God cared for us to such a degree that he enters into human history and becomes just like us? Now the writer says that there was something about the plan of redemption that necessitated the Son of God being made like us in every respect. Notice this in verse 17. Therefore, look at this language. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that, stating a purpose here, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I love the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews celebrates the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus like no other book in the New Testament. But it's right here in the book of Hebrews that we have the first explicit mention of Christ's priesthood. We've had allusions to it up to this point. For instance, Chapter 1, verse 3, he sat, after having made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, priestly imagery, sitting down, entering into his session, completed work, all of that. But it's right here that we have the first explicit expression that Jesus Christ has become the high priest. 
This ends up setting the stage, by the way, for, uh, for further development. In fact, if you just look at chapter 3, verse 1, you see the way this works. The writer then moves from this section that we're looking at to this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. From here on out in the book, the writer to the Hebrews is going to devote himself and focusing on Christ's priesthood, Christ's priestly ministry, both in sacrifice and intercession. It will become the pinnacle, the focal point of the rest of the book of Hebrews. But here's what he's telling us right here at this point, and that is Christ's incarnation had the explicit, expressed purpose of him entering into human history so that he would become our priest. Now, I know we live in in a culture where the language of priest and priesthood does not generally um, say a lot to people today. I grew up Roman Catholic, and so I understood what it was to have a guy with uh, in a black uh, outfit and a, and a little backwards collar, and he did all of the, the stuff on our behalf. And so to me, that was a priest. That guy was holy, and uh, my experience growing up, he was kind of gruff and, and kind of aloof and kind of mean. And here's Jesus, who actually becomes our great high priest. But notice this glorious description a merciful high priest. A merciful high priest. Now what the writer's going to do is he's going to expand on this theme of merciful in chapter 4, 15 through 5, 10. But understand, right here he introduces us to the reality that Jesus Christ became human The incarnation took place in order that he might become our merciful high priest. That is, our sympathetic high priest. Our tender high priest. Our compassionate high priest. Jesus didn't come into this world to be uh, some sort of cleric who remained distant and aloof from his people, but rather he actually entered in to our life, to our suffering, into the very stream of human history in order to be one who is sympathetic and tender and compassionate. John Owen puts it like this. One, he is one who lays all of the miseries of his people to heart so that caring for them... He can relieve them. Jesus comes into this world and he demonstrates in his life the compassion of his Father. I was very, very moved by by John's sermon this afternoon. And to see that demonstration of compassion in his own life to his sister, I, I, I found it so moving. But... Here's the reality. The the only reason why John and his wife are able to do that is because there is a great high priest who actually came and first did that for them. Jesus Christ demonstrates in his life the compassion of his father. Those of you who like to read, and I know there's a lot here, B.B. Warfield, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, great essay, the Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's in the Person and Work of Christ volume published by uh, P&R. Warfield says, at the end of that article, he says, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed uh, to Jesus, to that of Jesus, was his whole life was a mission of mercy and that attribute, no doubt, was compassion. In other words, out of all of the manifestations of the emotional life of Jesus, the one that manifests itself most consistently and most preeminently was that he was compassionate. He was compassionate on those who were in physical distress. He showed compassion on those who were blind. He showed compassion on those who were lepers. I I never cease to amaze. When I read Mark chapter 1, and you read this leper that comes into the synagogue, right? 
Where did that leper usually live? Well, he didn't live in town. He lived outside of town. And in fact, the Mosaic law actually dictated to him what he needed to do anytime he was around people. And that is he had to put his hand over his mouth and he needed to declare his presence by telling everybody, unclean, unclean, unclean. And the Mosaic law forbid anybody touching him. Now, it wasn't out of cruelty. It was really to protect the people and actually to be a picture of the, uh, the corruption and contamination of sin. But here's Jesus, the leper, comes Lord Jesus what do you want me to do for you Lord if you're willing make me clean I'm willing and then the text just simply says Mark just says and he stretched out his hand and he touched him and I've wondered over the years how long had it been since that man had felt human touch here he was, an outcast, the very, the very embodiment of sin in its corruption and contamination. And yet, here's the Lord Jesus who does what? Reaches out, and it says, and he, with full of compassion, moved in his bowels. There's a great, great word, right? Splognizomai. That's just, I say that word every chance I get. Splognizomai. The idea is viscerally moved. And so here's Jesus, and he's touched. He has compassion, pity and it drives him to act. He has compassion on the hungry. He has compassion on those who lost loved ones. It's clear in reading the Gospels that Jesus was one who was constantly moved by human suffering and by human need and being moved, he did something about it. A compassionate high priest. But he also showed compassion on those who were in, in spiritual need. He had compassion on the multitudes as those who had, were sheep without a shepherd. He had compassionate on even the rebellious, stiff-necked, lost of Jerusalem. As he cries over the city of Jerusalem and he knows their destruction is coming and he knows that they'll cry for his crucifixion and he knows that the leadership will reject him and yet even then the Son of God is moved with compassion on those who hate him and who would crucify him. And So our great high priest is not some cold, aloof, austere, stoic in a robe. Rather, he is one who is full of compassion and mercy to his people. And here's what I know about biblical counselors. Your people too, who suffer and go through trials, we're not the people who have all of the answers and walk around as if we're God's gift to suffering Christians everywhere and people follow us waiting for golden nuggets of wisdom to drop off of our tongue. We are people, just as surely as the people that come to talk to us, we too are people who desperately need compassion and we have a great high priest who gives it to us in abundance. And so it says Jesus became a merciful high priest, but it also says he became a faithful high priest. Now this theme is going to be unfolded from in 314 to 414. And the idea, of course, behind faithful is that he's dependable, he's reliable. Um, in one sense, we could say as high priest, he, he faithfully discharged his priestly duties. In that sense, he was faithful. But he's also faithful in the sense that he's absolutely and completely trustworthy. Think about what a magnificent gift Jesus is to you. He's compassionate with you, but he's also always faithful to you. He is faithful and trustworthy and reliable on behalf of those for whom he ministers. The Lord Jesus Christ is so faithful that if you are his, you cannot be lost because he is our faithful high priest. He actually came and made perfect atonement 
for you and made a perfect sacrifice for you. And now he not only faithfully discharged his atoning work on your behalf, not only faithfully saves you, but now he also faithfully keeps you saved. He faithfully preserves you by his perpetual intercession for you. He faithfully prays for you. He faithfully extends help and mercy to you. And the glorious reality of knowing Jesus is this. He never ever flakes out on you. As a counselor, have you ever flaked on somebody? You ever not followed through? You ever forgot about somebody? There's one who is seated at the right hand of the Father who never, ever, ever forgets you. His faithfulness as your high priest is your salvation. His faithfulness as your high priest is your perseverance. His faithfulness as your high priest is your sustenance and the catalyst for you not only to repent of your sins, but to care for others. One of these days, unless the Lord returns or God takes us unexpectedly, we'll live through our days and we'll come to that point where, as the hymn writer says, I love thee in life, I'll love thee in death, I'll love thee as long as thou lendest me breath, and say, when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Now, how do you know, how do you know that when it comes time for you to leave this world and enter into the next that you actually will be able to say, I love Christ. You know that you'll be able to say that not because you are some magnificent, sterling example of persevering faith. In fact, if all we had to go on for what we were going to be in the future is what we are right now in and of ourselves in the present, I would say, chances are, I'd probably lose my salvation and end up in hell. There's no confidence in myself. But I have a great high priest who faithfully prays for me. I have a great high priest that faithfully remembers me by name. I have a great high priest who says, I have prayed that your faith would not fail when you return, go and strengthen your brothers. And so the writer tells us, he rejoices in the fact that the Son of God took on flesh and blood to do what? To become our merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. That expression comes to us from the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and that is the things that God wants us to know and to do in terms of our relationship to him, our worship of him, our service of him. And so here's Jesus who is our perfect mediator. And if you're in him, you can trust him with absolute confidence because he is merciful, he's compassionate, he's faithful, he's trustworthy, and he will never, ever stop loving you, and he will never, ever let you down. Here's what I know. People will fail you. Your elders will fail you. Your husband will fail you. Your wife will fail you. 
your children will fail you. But there is one who is our great high priest, full of compassion, always tender, always faithful, and he will never, ever fail you. And here's the amazing thing. He will not fail us even though he knows us. To me, that's really the amazing thing, is that Jesus loves me even though he knows me. (laughs) He doesn't love me because he knows me. (laughs) To know me is not to love me. He loves me in spite of knowing me. He loves me knowing all of my weaknesses, all of my failures, all of my sins. He knows your weakness. He knows your fears. He knows your doubts. He knows your failures. And you can, with absolute and complete boldness, without reservation, trust Him, love Him, rejoice in Him, go directly to Him, and stand on His faithfulness. That... that's better to clap than like clapping at our sins up here during the panel. I tell you that. That was kind of weird. You know, we're all talking about how terrible we are and everybody starts clapping. Now, (laughs) this is the most glorious thing about about the church, the most glorious thing about biblical counseling, it's the most glorious thing about the Christian life and that is We actually have. That's the language of Hebrews, by the way. We have. We possess a great high priest. He's ours. He is ours. We are his. And he never, ever fails. And so then the writer says another thing. He says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is, again, another purpose statement. And so he becomes like us so that he can become our merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, but also so that he would come as our priest and make propitiation for our sins. Now, what's interesting to me is the writer actually inverts the order of of how I would put it. I would put it, Jesus propitiates our sins as our great high priest, and now he serves as our faithful and merciful high priest. The writer to the Hebrews puts it in, in reverse order, and now I think for the sake of emphasis focuses on what Jesus does for us as our atoning high priest. And so it says, he came to make propitiation for our sins. And stick with the word propitiation. It is a good word. Some of our Bible translations try to use different words because propitiation is not a word that we use all the time. But I I have the firm conviction that there are certain Bible words that are better left retained and then explained than than, set aside and then completely missed. And propitiation is one of those words. So the Son of God actually takes on himself flesh and blood in order to lay down his life as our great high priest to do what? To make propitiation for our sins. What in the world does that mean? It means our Lord Jesus Christ, as our mediator, as our great high priest, did what? He actually removed the wrath of God from us by bearing it in Himself, the judicial, white-hot anger of God that justly belonged to us, the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute, as our representative, goes to the cross in our place. And on the cross, as our Lord Jesus is hanging there, you'll remember darkness covered the face of the earth. And what happens? Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ bore in himself the wrath that all of my sins deserved. And all that your sins deserved. He was the one who, as it were, absorbed into his own holy self, his own holy soul, 
all of the wrath that his people deserve. And by doing that, he actually turns away the wrath of God from us for how long? Forever. Forever. This is just as true for you as it is for any counselee, and that is this. Jesus Christ has done absolutely everything necessary to remove every single solitary ounce of wrath and anger from God from you so that we can say with absolute confidence that God has no wrath left for me. Love drank it up in my place. (laughs) Don't torture yourself thinking that God's angry with you. Don't torture yourself thinking that God must must actually be passing judgment on you, punishing you. Understand, you will never, ever, ever be punished by the Father because Jesus Christ bore that punishment in your place. There's nothing left. There's nothing left but pure grace and mercy. And so we should have this absolute confidence because I trust in Christ, the one who made propitiation for my sins, that all of my God-belittling, glory-desecrating sins have been wiped away forever and God has nothing left for me and for you but unhindered love and mercy. I mentioned I was, I was raised Catholic and I will tell you, one of, the, one of the most difficult things that I had to try to get my, my head around was that when I sinned, my father had forgiven me. Because I thought that there was, there was still a, a penance process. Well, here, here's the thing. Is you don't have to be born Catholic to be sold on the idea that you need to make penance in order for God to forgive your sins. There's plenty of evangelical penance. If you think you need to read your Bible an extra chapter because you sinned, you just might be an evangelical Catholic. I, I feel some ideas coming on on this one. All right. You might be. Uh, never mind. All right. Now. The glorious thing is that I can live in the freedom of knowing that my sins of oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins not in part but behold are nailed to the cross. I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. That is gospel liberty. Spurgeon who preached this all the time, said, great thoughts of your sin alone will lead you into despair, but great thoughts of Christ will pilot you into a haven of peace. The weight of my sin presses down on me like a giant's foot would crush a worm, but oh, it is but a grain of dust to him who, be, who because he bore that sin on the cross. Verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So we're not only sinners who need a merciful high priest, a faithful high priest, and a propitiating high priest. We are also sinners who are weak and frail. And so here our high priest, as a merciful, sympathetic, faithful high priest, not only offers himself up to propitiate for our sins, but now he's also there for us in our weakness to give us all of the help that we need when we're being tested, tried, or tempted. Verse 18 gives the reason why he can help us. He suffered being tempted. I I think that what the writer has in mind here is actually quite simple, and that is that Christ's suffering was coextensive with his incarnation. When does he enter into his suffering? Well, the minute that he is conceived by the Holy Spirit in, in the womb of the virgin. That's when his suffering begins. Now, for sure, his suffering escalates with every develop, period and development of life, but here he is, 
His, his suffering is coextensive with the incarnation. The temptations and the trials that he experienced were a part of that suffering. And here's the glorious reality. The Lord Jesus Christ, through every single stage, at every single step, at every single solitary moment, was always, always faithful. And because of that, he is now able to help us. He is able. The writer to the Hebrews is fond of this expression. He is able to help us. In chapter 4, verse 15, you know what the writer does? He says it in, in kind of the reverse way. He says, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which is just another way of saying we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then chapter 7 and verse 25, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Why? Because he lives to make intercession for us. What kind of help does he give us? Chapter 4, verse 16, grace and mercy to help in time of need. And so here he is. He is our great high priest. And from him flows sympathy to you. Sympathy in your weakness. Sympathy, yes, even in your sin. Have you ever stopped to think that, 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 that what the Savior looks at and thinks of when he sees us when we are going wayward and when we are in our sin is not, not, the, uh, not the, the, the great king of the universe who's up there with, with a great scepter ready to smash us across the head because we're wayward or we're being disobedient and rebellious, but rather he is one who actually feels pity for us. He feels pity for us because what are we doing? We're actually giving up the fountain of living water for a broken cistern that holds no water. And he's not sitting up there angry with us. He's up there sympathizing with us. He sympathizes with us and and, and he identifies with us in our weakness, our suffering, our trials. And he is therefore caring for us. When you woke up this morning, you had a great high priest who was seated at the right hand of the Father who is caring for you. And when you go to bed tonight, you will fall asleep with a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father who is caring for you. One who sees all of your weaknesses, sees your struggles, and he cares for you. He says, come to the throne of grace. I'm able to give you mercy and grace to help you in time of need because I care for you. I love you. So, if we are to care for one another, we must marinate in Christ's care for us. That's where it must start. What, what a primer. What a primer to actually care for others. You, you see, I'm convinced that the counselor must actually know first and foremost his sympathetic, merciful, faithful high priest if that counselor is in turn to extend mercy, sympathy, and help to somebody else. People that are ruthless and harsh and hard and, um, you know, the kind of counselor of make bricks without straw kind of guy. Well, you know what? There's something that's lacking and it's not necessarily um, know-how on, on how to counsel. What's lacking is a failure to be overwhelmed with Christ's mercy and sympathy towards me as a sinner who is just as much in need of it as that person I'm talking to. And so if our hearts are filled with Christ's care for us, then we in turn will actually extend that care 
towards others. How in the world could we be anything other than merciful and sympathetic and compassionate and faithful once we've soaked that in ourselves from Christ himself? How in the world could we turn and after taking that and turn around and be harsh with somebody or turn around and pound somebody with the law? How can we be anything but gospel-saturated counselors if we're spending time in the presence of our merciful and faithful high priest. And so, if you want to care for others, soak in Christ's care for you. And if we're to be faithful in our care of others, we make sure that we always do one thing. And that is, we point them to the only one who can truly care for them in a saving, sanctifying way. The best thing that you can ever do to anybody is point them to Christ, who is their merciful and faithful high priest. You can give them a book. You can give them homework, all those things are fine. But if they leave without being pointed to the only one who can truly help them, then you have done nothing for their souls. Point them to Christ. He truly cares. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your son. What an amazing gift. Father, we pray, we pray that we would be people that just revel in who Christ is and what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us and what he has in store for us. Father, may we be those who fix our eyes on Jesus. May we be those who drink deeply at the well of his compassion and his faithfulness. And Father, we pray that you would help us to simply be conduits of that mercy and faithfulness to others. And we pray, Father, that you would so fill our hearts with love and praise to Christ that it becomes contagious to the people that we're talking to. Father, thank you for Jesus. May his holy name be forever praised. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.